vote forward collectively and that it's in their best interest, actually, to work collectively together. That same skill set is what you need to lead an educational institution, which by my last count has about 13 different stakeholders, all of whom have competing interests, and the goal is really to get them all in the same boat to help the institution move forward. So I think in a, in a sort of wonderful way, speaking to a group um, that's based at ABI, it's interesting to know how important the restructuring and insolvency skill set is to what I'm doing now. So you, you, would, you, uh, would it be fair to characterize what you're doing as being a turnaround specialist at this point? <laughs> well, I'm not sure my current academic home would like to be called a turnaround. <laughs> I think what's fair to say is that in education today, particularly small private liberal arts educational institutions, other than the very elite, they are all organizations where the issues of their economics is a very big part of getting them to go forward. Mm -hmm. And almost all small, private, non-elite liberal arts colleges are what some people would term fiscally fragile or ones where one has to pay very close attention to their financial well-being. Now, we've had a balanced budget for the last three years with um, fully funded depreciation and an unqualified audit. But that said, you still have to be working very hard to get this economic model to work if you're largely tuition dependent. So I wouldn't call, call this a turnaround. <laughs> I would call this an opportunity to think about how to make the case for small private liberal arts education in the 21st century. And you know something, Lois, an interesting piece of this is that if we don't find a way to do this, if we can't find a model for this kind of educational institution, it will go the way of the buggy whip maker. Uh -huh. And we'll be left with large state universities, community colleges, and elite small private institutions. And the entire world of non-elite small private liberal arts educational institutions will be threatened. And that's not a solution for me. Those institutions have to not just survive, they actually have to thrive. Because they're performing such an important function. They are. And by the way, the students whom they serve are not the students who would go to many of those elite institutions. And they're also students who don't um, want to go to the larger universities where they'll get lost and for whom, while community college may be an option, they would actually like to find an academic home where they can be for four years. So there's a real role for these institutions if we can find a way to make the educative and economic model work. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned in the introduction, um, you've written quite a lot about and worked on a variety of projects addressing the issue of um, debtor education and financial literacy generally. Um, why have you found this issue to be so compelling? It actually started, and, and it, by the way, presents a really interesting confluence of events with my current work, mm -hmm. because students are deeply indebted, and our way of financing higher education has increasingly made them more and more indebted. And students suffer from a lack of financial literacy education, which means that educational institutions truly should care 
mm-hmm. not just about the amount of the loans, but what will happen to those loans when the students leave you. Because otherwise, you're going to have a group of graduates who will be struggling, unable to give back to the institution, unhappy with the educational situation they find themselves in going forward. And even while they're in school, they'll be working so hard at jobs that they won't be able to do what's a really big part of the college experience, which is to engage with other students, to participate in activities on campus, to do the kind of learning that happens outside the classroom. So interestingly, this same field is truly relevant to what I'm doing now. But to go to your question, why did it matter? I went and worked at Legal Aid on one sabbatical time period in the 1990s. And what was really interesting about that opportunity is I I came into that situation believing that bankruptcy was a solution to many of the issues that over-indebted individuals had. Mm -hmm. And what I saw is that lots of what happened had to do with what was external to bankruptcy. And bankruptcy, while a solution, wasn't going to resolve the deeper issues that surrounded what was happening to less privileged individuals in the consumer financial market. And so I started paying attention to more than bankruptcy alone, but to the world of consumer finance and the consumer financial markets. And what becomes very clear is that our paradigm for consumer protection is disclosure. And we have a substantial amount of disclosure, but people had no clue as to what was happening to them day in and day out. And they were subjected to predatory practices. They made unwise financial decisions. And they struggled to navigate day-to-day in a complex, increasingly complex world of consumer finance. And it's really out of that that I started to pay attention to the importance of debtor education and financial literacy education. Well, and and as, as you know, the GAO recently issued a report evaluating the value of both credit counseling as well as the debtor education requirements in the new bankruptcy amendments. Um, First, what is your view of the mandated debtor education program, or at least the program as contemplated by Congress? Well, first, it's very important that you're distinguishing the two requirements Mm -hmm. because they're definitely not the same, and they've been conflated by a number of people, Mm -hmm. and it's really important to distinguish between them. Uh, I've been, and and interestingly, by the way, as just sort of a note of history, we started this process with the legislative reform only focusing on the post-filing debtor education. Mm -hmm. The credit counseling piece came in way later, They weren't initially meant as a package to come together. Um, In any event, the debtor education piece in and of itself, I think, is a very thoughtful and important potential part of a bankruptcy system. Making it mandatory for me is a different and much more complex issue. Let me just talk about the education part in and of itself. Mm -hmm. It makes sense that bankruptcy may be a teachable moment. Not the moment you file, but once you're in the bankruptcy system, it may be an opportunity to let people think about, learn about, and pay attention in ways they couldn't before to the issues that they did confront in the past and that they will confront in the future. And if you can give them a toolbox of skills so that they can move forward from the bankruptcy process and make wiser and more thoughtful decisions and make 
decisions that are ones that are more informed, even if they make wrong decisions, then that's a benefit. And we may have found a moment when that education makes sense. And by the way, finding that teachable moment is really important for financial literacy education more generally. Mm -hmm. If you don't find that moment, it's wasted. So just to give you an example, on college campuses, many people offer financial literacy education during orientation. And I'd suggest to you that at least most students I've seen on a college campus during orientation are trying to find their way to the dining hall right, or the classroom. Yeah. Um, they're not paying attention to whether they should use their credit card to buy pizza. Um, so that's obviously, for me, not an opportune time. Now, the mandatory part of this is what really troubles me um, because you need an apparatus to do that in a way that is helpful to people, not hurtful to people, and is not overly costly. Mm -hmm. And when you have as many bankruptcy filings as we do in our country, even with somewhat reduced numbers now, you're still talking about creating a very large infrastructure in which individuals have to participate to be able to get their discharge. And I'm troubled by the very limited exceptions that are in the code now for people who want to circumvent the mandate because it's such a narrow group that many people who perhaps should be able to get through the process without the education cannot. And as a consequence of that, they cannot get a discharge, which is the whole purpose at least for most people, of filing for bankruptcy, whether a 7 or an 11 in the, or a 13 in the first instance. Mm -hmm. The other part is it's expensive. And the method for determining who can get that education without paying for it um, is, um, at the present moment, not particularly clear. And so it's hard for people, at least some people, to get the waiver and it's hard for them then to be able to get the discharge, which I think they should be entitled to. So a mandate for me is a problematic requirement. Mm -hmm. and, and the same criticism about the criteria for affordability of the, um, the mandate was observed in the GA study about the credit counseling requirement. Um, and the, the GAO report um, stated that this requirement, the credit counseling requirement, was intended to help consumers make informed choices about bankruptcy and its alternatives. Um, and, but the report also observed that by the time most clients received the counseling, their financial situation was so dire that they had no viable alternative but to file for bankruptcy. Um, wh what do you think of the credit counseling requirement, both as contemplated and as operationalized? The, the credit counseling piece is way more problematic than the debtor education piece, mm -hmm. in part because it's a ticket to enter the system. And the original, we, we could debate what the original purpose of the credit counseling provision is. And if we're being non-cynical, mm -hmm. we'd say it was to ensure that debtors were making informed choices about whether bankruptcy was the right option for them. And the fear was that the reason our filings were so high is that people were making that decision without adequate information. Mm -hmm. And moreover, that many of the people making that decision were in a position to repay their creditors, at least in substantial part, and had elected not to do so. 
So if that was the goal, then you would posit that the counseling requirement would help serve as a filter of who would be entering the bankruptcy system. And you'd find an increase in the number of options for those individuals, which would then allow them to bypass, in essence, the bankruptcy system. And then if you studied the people who actually went into the system, you'd be able to see whether or not, or the people who went into counseling, whether or not they look like the kind of people who would be, in essence, quote, abusing the process. And the most interesting feature of all of this for me mm -hmm. is that the counseling isn't satisfying any of those goals. And perhaps most importantly and really interestingly, this is one of those times when I think creditors should be asking, be careful what you wish for, because the data collected about the consumers themselves who have accessed counseling reveals that for the most part, these are individuals who truly are financially distressed. Mm -hmm. These are not individuals who are gaming the system. These are not individuals with a huge amount of money who are then trying to find a way to shirk their responsibilities. That's not who they are. And we're also finding, based on the data that have been collected so far, that the individuals are not opting for debt management plans which would have been the alternative that creditors might have wished for, which is the opportunity to push them into non-bankruptcy alternatives that would have allowed for repayment, particularly of certain categories of creditors. And that hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. But perhaps the, most, the other most interesting feature is that the way consumers are getting to the counseling is through their lawyer, not on their own initially. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that they are getting a kind of counseling. One can debate whether lawyers are or are not doing a good job of it. But they are getting counseling through their legal counsel, who is then directing them to the pre-bankruptcy counseling requirement. And it's awfully difficult for a consumer who's already consulted and likely paid a lawyer to then pay for a credit counseling session where they have already made the decision to enter into the bankruptcy system. So the whole thing, um, as operationalized, is deeply flawed, not to speak, by the way, of the rather important question about who are the providers and are they consistently doing a thoughtful job of counseling the individuals who are now required to get their services. and. I would tell you that the literature on the credit counseling industry is pretty clear that there are some very, very good providers, mm -hmm. but there are also some awful providers who are not able to provide quality counseling. And for me, one of the unbelievable, unmonitored pieces of this legislation is that we are not adequately monitoring the content of the counseling that's being given to ensure that consumers are being given correct information, thoughtful information, respectful information. And so at the end of the day, there were some, I think, quite laudable goals, which recognize that not all individuals are fully appreciating the consequences of their act, but we've created a structure that is unworkable, expensive, difficult, and at the end of the day, not serving any of the original goals. That's something that we should be worried about. That suggests that the legislation, as not only enacted but operationalized, is deeply, deeply flawed.
We pause this week's podcast to bring you bankruptcy in the news. State and federal lawmakers are continuing their probe into the student loan industry to correct a number of alleged abusive practices that have come to light. Likening the non-federal student loan industry to the Wild West, New York Attorney General Andrew Como has called for tighter federal oversight of the industry. His office continues to look into possible discriminatory practices by student lenders. Como testified at a recent congressional hearing that his investigation suggests students attending different schools could be treated differently on price by lenders. Lawmakers are discussing changes to address some of the potential abuses in the private student lending industry. Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Chairman Edward Kennedy recently introduced a Higher Education Act reauthorization bill that would cut $18.3 billion in lender subsidies to fund a $17.3 billion increase in need-based aid. Guarantee agencies could collect just 16%, down from 23%, of the profit made on defaulted loan payments and cut the special allowance payments given to lenders on new loans. Kennedy's bill also calls for the creation of a pilot program that would require lenders to compete in an auction process to provide federal parent loans. By forcing companies to compete for business, the federal government would avoid having to woo lenders with subsidies to offer loans to students. Kennedy also released a report on the student loan industry admonishing private lenders for cozy relationships with college financial aid administrators to gain exclusive spots on so-called preferred provider lists that schools give to incoming students and their families. The report criticized school administrators who receive payments for consulting and other services from program lenders on the preferred lender list. This has been John Hartgen of the ABI. Thank you for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. In your 1996 book, Failure and Forgiveness, um, you make a series of recommendations for reform of the bankruptcy system. Which weren't too well adopted, were they? (laughs) I was going to say, (laughs) among those recommendations is the elimination of 707B, which prior to the amendments allowed the court to preclude a debtor from seeking relief under Chapter 7 under certain circumstances with discretion in the hands of the judge. Well, as part of the bankruptcy amendments, as you well know, 707B was drastically altered, although not in the direction uh, which you advocated. Instead, a means test was imposed on every consumer seeking relief, and in short, if the debtor flunks the means test, then Chapter 7 is not available to them. Speak to us, and, and you did somewhat, but um, about your reaction to the means test, both in theory and as it has been working in practice over the past month. Um, well, nice of you to go back and ask whether anything I thought was appropriate <laughs> 10 years ago um, has come to pass. You know, I, I do a funny thing with law students at the end of a bankruptcy class. I actually give them my predictions for the next five years in uh-huh. bankruptcy. And I say to them, someday, if you don't throw away the notebook, pull it out and see how right or wrong <laughs> I am. And you can laugh or, you know, if I get to do something right on one of the predictions, you know, pick up the phone and give me a call. You get to be called precinct, yes. Um, um, or, a, or a complete failure <laughs> at my ability to predict the future. Um, 
I obviously thought that 707B way back when was problematic and that 707A was sufficient um, to root out abusers of the bankruptcy system. Um, and my own belief is that the code's problem was that we were singling out individuals with a standard that was very, very difficult to implement. It was quite idiosyncratic, and that in point of fact, there weren't that many individuals that were abusing the system. Mm -hmm. and, and frankly, there's a fair amount of empirical data to support the position that I've just described to you. And the question for me is, do you design a legal system for the bad actors, or do you design a legal system for the good actors, and then try to eradicate the bad actors in the best way possible. And my approach generally to legislation is that you craft for the people who are non-abusers, um, the good actors, the good apples. And if there are bad apples, that's going to happen in any system. You do your best to root them out. Um, and when you find them, you should deal with them. But you shouldn't structure a system to capture everyone, um, good or bad, in mm -hmm. an effort to collect the bad. And the shift that's happened um, obviously, and as many of the people listening to this know, is that it, it took a view very opposite um, to mine, which is that we should create a very complex mechanism to ensnare all debtors, consumer debtors, and then at the end of the day, we should ferret out those who are, quote, abusers from that system and force them, and I'm using that in quotations because they could elect not to access the bankruptcy system, but force them out of Chapter 7 and into Chapter 13. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have a huge philosophical problem with the approach. And frankly, at some level, as you know from an article that, that actually you and I wrote with um, Kate Height, mm -hmm. we talked about that one of the ways of thinking about what really happened is that under the system that I think is appropriate, you give a fair amount, actually a, a lot of discretion to the judiciary mm -hmm. to decide who is abusing the system. And you trust in your judiciary to be able to make the distinction between good actor and bad actor debtors. What we've done now is we've largely eliminated judicial discretion, in part perhaps because Congress didn't trust the judiciary. And instead, we placed our faith in a congressionally mandated mechanism for determining who should and shouldn't access the bankruptcy system. And we created more loops and hoops and costs and expense and paperwork, which has been increasingly documented, by the way, in the empirical literature on this. Mm -hmm. um, and we end up with a system where the judiciary can't do much except say it's my job to implement the statute, and the statute is what the statute is. I, I think the tragedy for me at the end of the day is that we created a system for a group of people, abusers, who don't exist. And so what we've done is, unfortunately, we've ratcheted up the cost both with the front-end requirement of credit counseling, the back-end requirement of debtor education, complex paperwork along the way, fewer lawyers, increased fees for the lawyers, fewer pro bono opportunities for the lawyers to help the consumers because there's potential liability. And you end up with a system that wasn't speaking to the real people who needed the help. And what kind of impact do you predict this system will have on um, potential debtors and on the economy in general? Um, I think it's still a little too early to tell mm -hmm. um, what's going to happen under this new system. Um, but I will tell you one thing that frightens me about it, um, which is that when you look at the decrease in filings, although they're going up, 
one has to posit that several things must be happening that account for the low level of filings, in addition to that surge of filings mm -hmm. that happened the month before the new law went into effect in October of 2005. Mm -hmm. um, there have to be some other things happening, and those are the ones that really trouble me. The first is that I think some consumers are still living under the misapprehension that bankruptcy for consumers has gone away. I really think that in the rush to get people in, mm -hmm. we said to them something that they read as, there won't be bankruptcy for consumers after October. That's not a good news thing. Right. The second thing that I think is happening is that I think consumers are delaying when they file. And when you do that, by the time they get into bankruptcy, some of the situations are way worse than they would have been had they been able to access the system sooner. Mm -hmm. And it's like going to a doctor too late. If you went sooner, you could get a better result for whatever ails you. The same thing is true by the time you enter the bankruptcy system. It's way easier to resolve some of these problems before you have multiple defaults and multiple things that can't be reinstated and multiple events that have happened and behaviors that, that change how your creditors and the code will treat you. Um, I happen to think, and I share this view, I think, with Professor Ronald Mann, that one of the creditor advantages that nobody really focused on is that even though creditors anticipated a much greater payout in the bankruptcy system, which hasn't come to pass, um, and thought they'd ensnare all these abusers, one benefit they are getting is the benefit of delay, mm -hmm. which has an economic benefit to them because what they get to do is they get to charge interest and increase the amount that's owed to them pre-bankruptcy because consumers may be delaying the point in time at which they access the system. Hmm. So all of these are, are troubling to me and um, worrisome not just in terms of the role of the judiciary versus the role of the legislature and the balance of power, but in terms of the economic consequences of this, which is really my fourth point, which is I think you push people into the either subprime or predatory lending market. For people who then aren't accessing the bankruptcy system or who are in financial trouble and can't quickly access the bankruptcy system, they start entering into financial loan product arrangements that doom them, and they enter into like a quicksand of financial distress where they can't get out. And increasingly, where one's credit status is used to determine employability and insurability, yeah. we are dooming a group of people. And the sad part is that bankruptcy was meant to provide really a fresh start and, in a sense, to, to wipe your fiscal slate clean. Unfortunately, one's fiscal situation now has impacts far beyond just your access to and the price you pay for credit. It now affects a host of other things, your ability to rent an apartment, your ability to get certain kinds of credit and at what price, your ability to get a job, your ability to get insurance in some situations. And so what we're going to end up with is a group of people who are placed not only in a precarious situation because of their finances, but then they will be unemployable and uninsurable. And we're a nation without huge social safety nets. This is not good. It, and there's there's been quite a bit of congressional attention paid um, in recent months to um, some abusive practices by various creditors, the subprime mortgage market, credit card. 
Do you have a prediction as to what will come out of this congressional attention and the variety of hearings that have been going on? Well, these aren't. This isn't the first time mm -hmm. that an effort has been made to think about the consumer financial market and how credit cards, debit cards, stored value cards, and other consumer financial products are working. There have been hearings on credit reporting, credit scoring, the whole consumer financial markets, and there have not been dramatic shifts. Mm -hmm. I can be very cynical and tell you that the hearings are there to serve as a palliative, but when the rubber meets the road, which is doing something dramatic about it, the credit industry has been very successful at ensuring that legislation is watered down. And what's perhaps most striking about that is that at the end of the day, much of the legislation that gets enacted comes in the form of disclosure. Mm -hmm. And so... One of the reasons, interestingly, that I think ultimately disclosure happens is because creditors know that for disclosure to work, consumers have to see the disclosure, read the disclosure, understand the disclosure, and lastly, and perhaps most significantly, act on it. And I think those four assumptions, in truth, are problematic. And even if you see it, read it, and even if you understand it, many people don't act on it. And so disclosure as a form of consumer protection is an incomplete paradigm. So even if we got people to act, I don't think it would help. Now, last time I checked, there were supposed to be increased disclosures to consumers as a consequence of the bankruptcy amendment as it related to minimum payments on credit cards. Mm -hmm. And last time I checked, and I could be wrong on this because I haven't looked at it you know, in the last little bit, those new changes had not yet been implemented. And now we're talking about they were supposed to be implemented as part of or shortly thereafter the new bankruptcy amendment. So even the disclosure we're so supposed to have that's mandated by statute hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not hugely optimistic, at least not yet, that the consumer voice will be heard. You, you conclude failure and forgiveness with the statement, a legal system designed to deal with failure says a lot about the United States as a nation. It speaks to deepest, people's deepest and most secret fears. America needs a bankruptcy system that assuages those fears, that lets people live responsibly and productively in a world of failure. Um, in some ways, you've answered this, but how does our current bankruptcy system do in this regard? Well, I, I, I guess if I were to look at what I wrote, I would say that that's what I hope a system would do. Mm -hmm. I would hope a system would give us a way to deal with the inevitable failure that occurs in, in life. Mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, we've moved in the opposite direction, which is a much more punitive model of how to think about bankruptcy. And I think part of what's happened, if I can sort of intersect law with psychology, mm -hmm. is that I think, unfortunately, many people are very worried themselves about being in debt. All people. I mean, I think as a nation, we're actually worried about debt. And the difference between you and I and debtors isn't a difference in kind, it's a difference in degree. We're all debtors. And I think part of the reason 
that we have such antipathy now to debtors is that they could be us. And what we do when they could be us is what we do with any group that threatens us. We malign them, we ostracize them, we marginalize them. We do that with the mentally ill. We do that with other groups that we don't want living in our neighborhoods. And so what we do with debtors, because we actually believe we could be them, is that we treat them as bad actors. And so I think, unfortunately, many of us at our deep level of, of understanding of ourselves, which we may or may not recognize, is that we've created a system, unfortunately, that doesn't answer our fears. It perpetuates our fears. And I guess what I would tell you is perhaps I was more optimistic a decade ago than I am now. I mean, maybe I'm getting both old and cynical. <laughs> um, but I, I, I actually think a number of other nations are becoming more progressive than we are. And the irony is that those nations followed us from where we were 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and they've moved to be vastly more progressive, and we've become more retrogressive. And so if I were to change um, this, I might take out the word United States as a nation that, that helps and speaks to people's fears and helps assuage those fears and helps them live responsibly. I'd take out the word United States, and I substitute in the name of, of several other nations, including those in the EU, who have developed a progressive and thoughtful approach to consumer over-indebtedness. So maybe I could keep the paragraph the same <laughs> and just change the nation to whom it applies, which was, by the way, obviously not my intent <laughs> a decade ago. Well, thank you so much for joining me, President Gross. Um, I'm Lois Lapika, and this has been another American Bank.